everybody. My name is um, Etienne. I'm one of the elders together with my wife, Ilza. Just uh, lovely being with you this morning and um, so happy to be able to share something from the Word of God with you this morning. Um, last week, um, it was so cool. I had a, a Neil asked me to, to share something with the, with the youth and um, I had this message. They were busy with this series and if, 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 if your kids are in youth, from the ages of, of uh, basically your high school years, and they're not at youth, I really want to encourage you to send them. There's so many amazing things going on there, and um, it's just so tangible how God is, is really meeting those children wherever they are and uh, carrying them, and just seeing how they too are finding spiritual family within the, in the youth. But um, they were busy with the series on the prodigal son, and I spoke a little bit about the righteousness of God, and I realized that um, it's something that actually irritates me a little bit, not the righteousness of God, the, the word righteousness, and a lot of words that we use in church. Um, I find that a lot of the words that we use in church and some of the translations of the Bible that we use is not language that we use every day. And it's, uh, I almost want to start like a tradition, you know, when, whenever somebody uses, stands and preaches and uses a word that... Um, you know, we don't use in every language, you can throw something at the preacher. You know, you see, you see words like righteousness, justification, sanctification, glorification. You know, it sounds very holy and very churchy and very Christian-y and everything, but it's not language that we use every day, is it? And I find that it's almost, you know, unnecessary that we use words that we have to explain to people what the words mean before we can explain to them how God feels about them. And um, this, this week I read something that was really great. I was reading in, in, in a book by Paulson, and he was talking about a language that I, or a style of language, I suppose, that I, I don't know anything. Maybe you guys know what it is. Do you know what pigeon English is? Not like pigeon, woo, pigeon. <laughs> like P-I-D-G-I-N, pigeon English. I, I never knew something like that existed, but there are many pidgin languages. Pidgin languages are very simplified language styles, most often used when you have two communities that don't understand together, coming together and finding a communal, simple, simplified language that both cultures or both languages can understand. It's, uh, those of us in South Africa know Fanaga law that started to come into being, that was designed by the mining companies and the mining guru, that is an example of a pidgin language. And pidgin languages were often used in ministry, in evangelism, where people would go to a nation that they didn't understand, they would develop a pidgin English so that the people could understand each other. And um, you actually find it in many places in the world, and there are actually pidgin translations of the Bible. And um, what I was reading was, was this, there's this... Bible that was used in uh, evangelism in New Guinea, Pidgin English Bible translation, and it translates the word justification as follows. It says, God, he say, I'm all right. Huh? Isn't that lovely? God, he say, I'm all right. And when I read it, I was just like filled with the same joy that you feel now, that knowing that God says I'm all right. Ah, so much better than the word justification. And um, it sort of, sort of take me, took me on this journey together with this 
preparation for this morning, this idea that God says, I'm all right, I'm just so relieved that He says, I'm all right. And the fact that He says, I'm all right, despite the messes that I make every day. Every day I make such a mess, you know, the constant sins that I struggle with, the bad decisions that I make, the way I treat people, the way I treat my wife. I had to apologize to Ilda twice on Friday. (laughs) And then I went for a run yesterday morning with Greg, and I realized there was something else I had to apologize to Ilda with, and I came home and I had to apologize to her again. Just so making a mess of things. But God says I'm all right. But it made me realize that there's a problem, there's actually two problems. And it's that the fact that I know that God says I'm all right often becomes the excuse for me to do the things that I want to do. Because it's like, if God says I'm all right, despite the messes that I make, when I do make messes, I'm like, yeah, okay, well, at least God says I'm all right, doesn't he? And um, I realized this week that that happens in my life, where it's so easy to sort of overlook the, you know, the little sins, the little things we do, the little mistakes we make, because God says it's all right. We just say we're sorry and we go on, and it's like I have a, a license to do the wrong thing, or I've got a license to do whatever I want to, to do with my life. And then what made it even worse this week was that there was these things that were happening in the news. You know what happened in the U.S. and in Uvalde. I mean, it's, you almost can't talk about it. I mean, if, I know if I start talking about it, I'm going to cry. But the problem with those things is, is that as much as I want to solve them and as much as I want to contribute positively, I also know that if I look at the problems in the world, if I look at the world outside of me and the things that people are doing around me, that too becomes an excuse for me to live the way that I want to and to sort of minimize the messes that I make and the sins that I have and the decisions that I make and the fact that I want to remain in control of my life. And I just realized the more I prayed about this and thought about it is, is that it's such a pandemic, you know. It's such a, a problem, and it's a problem that's not only outside of the world. It's a problem that's inside of church. It's a problem that's inside of the communities that we live in. Where on the one hand, we know that God has set us free, and we know that God has saved us, and God says, I'm all right. But it becomes a license for us to just do whatever we want to. And then we look at the world around us, and we look a little bit better than them, and it becomes so easy to point fingers at them and like criticize the world and criticize these terrible things that happen, but it just hides the fact that we're making a terrible mess of things. And we know that the church and God's plan for the world is for the church to play a role in saving society and saving people and being the answer to the problems in the world. But whilst we're trying to do that, we know that we're not a great solution for the world because internally we struggle in our own lives with our own problems that we have and the messes that we make. And very often, because of this license that we have to do whatever we want to, because God says we're all right, we end up not looking much different to the world around us. And so there's this supposed to be this very great distinction between us as, as, as followers of Jesus and as a community of followers of Jesus at church and the relationships that we have with one another 
there's supposed to be the contrast between that and the world, but if we look at it, it's actually not that much different. And we actually become aware of the fact that we may not necessarily be the solution for the world that God wanted us to be. And if you think about it this way, you almost become a little bit despondent. That's why it's so great that we have the Word of God. Because this week I just realized again that there's so much in this world that's been the same forever. There's so much under the sun that's not changed. That's why the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And this morning I want to talk to you about events that happened 2,000 years ago in a community that was much like ours. And we're going to look at Romans 6. And I want to ask you to page there in the, the Bible. And in the meantime, it's going to be up here as well. But if you've got your Bible, read it with me. Um, but I want to tell you a little bit about the book of Romans before we do, do that. Because it's really important for us to be able to understand what is God saying to us in Linwood, in Chwane, in Gauteng, in the Republic of South Africa, in the year 2022. Because it becomes easy to become detached from those peoples and the lives that they were living and the circumstances that they had and the lives that we have to live today. And so Paul's writing to this church in Romans, and what's interesting about the letter that he's writing is it's very different to many of the other letters that he written, had written in respect of the other letters that he had wrote. He had either written to people that he knew or he wrote it to a church he had planted, who he had visited. Okay, whereas he's writing to the Roman church, he doesn't know anybody, in the church, he knows some people that were in the Roman church. He doesn't know people in the Roman church, and he's never been there, and he hasn't planted the church. And it's actually a little bit tricky to understand the book Romans if you only look at the book of Romans. But the moment you start looking at the book of Acts and some of the other letters in the New Testament, and if you start looking at history, it opens up your eyes to what the world was that these people were living in, the reason why Paul was writing to them. And so what happened was, was that if you remember from Acts 2, there was the day of Pentecost, there was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and a lot of people came to faith in Jesus Christ, decided to follow Him. And it says there, and there were visitors from Rome. And later on in, in Acts 18, there's this piece where where Paul talks about him meeting two people, Aquila, Priscilla, and, and, and Aquila, who had been expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius. And if you tie that up to the history of the world that we know, it just opens up the picture, because this, there was this Christian church, church of, of believers in Rome, and there was this community of Jewish people, a ghetto in Rome, of about 40,000 Jews in the time of Claudius. This is what history tells us. But what then happened was Claudius didn't like the Jews. He wanted them expelled, but he was looking for a reason to expel them. And part of this Jewish community, there were Jewish Christians, and after a while, there were not only Jewish Christians, but there were also people who were not Jewish, Gentiles, unbelievers who became Christians. And there are these letters that we know that Claudius wrote and where he spoke about a dispute that had arisen amongst the Jews about this man called Christos, I wonder who that was, and 
he then, because of the riots that started, because of that, he expelled the Jews from Rome. He expelled 40,000 Jews from Rome. You're wondering, where's all of this heading? So he expels 40,000 Jews for Rome. Eventually, he dies as they do. And then the next Caesar, as they do, sees things differently. He says, listen, I don't... I need the Jews because they're good for business. They're good for taxes. So let all the Jews come back. So now you had this Jew church with Jewish believers. All the Jews have to leave. Now it's only the Gentiles that are left. They're following Jesus. They're doing church life as they think it should be done and as, as they believe. And then after a few years, you've got all these Jewish Christians coming back. And what happened? There is conflict. There's disunity. There's a problem in the church with people not seeing things the same anymore, Jewish and Gentiles. And that's why you read in, Rome, you, uh, in Romans, you see all these problems that he's addressing, like, you know, which days to celebrate and what food can you eat, because these are the kinds of problems that they have. But what we also see from the book of Romans is that it paints a picture of a society which is severely broken. It starts off and it addresses problems like homosexuality. It addresses problems like the breakdown of the family. It talks about a, the fact that society has become broken to such a point where children are disrespecting their parents. It's talking about tax evasion, lawlessness, a failure to abide with the government's rules and directives. And the more you read about it, the more you see, but it's our society that's reflected in the letter that Paul is writing to the Romans. Because not only are they in a broken society that has, got full of, that has got its own problems, they are in a church where there is not always unity, where there's a difference of opinion, where there is conflict. And the people inside of the church have got their own problems, their own struggles with the messes that they are making. And you see that what Paul is writing is he's writing to these Romans and he's saying to them, but there are things in your own life that you need to address so that the problems within the church become solved, so that the church problems are removed, and so that the church once again becomes the answer for the problems that you see in society. And that's where we lift off with this. And he starts in Romans 6, and he's talking about grace. And the, fact, the reason why he's talking about grace is that he has now just painted this, different, this wonderful picture about the fact that God says, I am all right. But then he is also answering criticism, and he's saying, well, this fact that God says you're right, does that give you a license to live like you want to? And now he's starting to answer that question. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means, he answers it. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You see, what Paul is starting to say is he asks and answers the question and says, well, the fact that we, um, because of God's grace 
and the fact that we've been freed, set free from the effects of sin, does that mean that we can now continue going on sinning? And he's saying no. By no means. That's not what it means. And then he starts to explain something, and you see that he's trying to do something. He's trying to address a number of problems. And the first thing you have to notice here is the fact that he uses the word we. 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 Continues using the word we. Because what he's saying is he's writing to these people, and it's Jews and it's Gentiles. And what he's saying to them is, is that we have got the same problem. We all, doesn't matter who, are, who we are, what our background is, what race we are, what language we speak, what our background in religion may be or not, being not religious may be, it means that we as followers have got the same problem and there's the same solution to all of us. So he's starting to address this fact that there isn't unity. You see that? So he goes and he says, I'm going to read from verse 3 again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So you see there that he's saying, he's saying that all of us that are followers of Jesus, those of us who are baptized, who made a decision to follow Jesus, and we were baptized, we were baptized into Christ. It's something that we did. So we are no longer outside. We're no longer in a place where each of us are doing our own thing. We've been baptized into Christ. If we are all baptized into Christ, where are we all? We are all in Christ. Are we alone? No, we're not alone. We're there. We're together. And he says, all of us that are baptized into Christ, we were buried for with him by baptism into death in order. So there's a reason for this. The fact that we were baptized into his death, there's a reason for it. It says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So again, we too might walk in newness of life. He's explaining and saying, and he's it's just basically emphasizing this unity again. He's saying, you know what? All of us have got the same issue. All of us is making a mess of things. And we make a mess of things because we've got this license to do whatever we want to. Or we become moralistic where we stick to the rules because of the rules in themselves. And not because realizing that we have died to our old life. And now we're living together in Christ. And because we live in Christ, we are now at a place where we can enjoy a new life that doesn't look like our old life. And we've we all not been to that place where we know that despite the fact that God says I'm right, right and the fact that I am saved, I do not always feel alive in the way that I live because I'm not living in the fullness of the life that Jesus has called me to live in Him. And he goes on then and he says, from verse 5, he says, then, if we have been united, you see that, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So now he's not only comparing us with one another, he's comparing us with Christ. It's so much greater, it's so much more beautiful, this picture that he's painting. But there's this interesting word, the word that you see there, it says, if we have been united. It's the Greek word, sumphutos, and it actually means to be planted 
together. To be joined together. It's this beautiful picture that all of us are planted together into Christ. It's like a forest that's being planted together in Christ. It's like this beautiful piece of wilderness or a garden that's being planted together in Christ, where everything that is planted there is not necessarily exactly the same, like you've got this plantation with rows of trees, but every plant is different in size and color and smell and what it looks like. And as we come together, as you have this amazing gardener planting us together in Christ, we become this thing that's beautiful to the outside world. So we are unified in our differences, not called on to be exactly the same, but to be unified in Christ and to become this wonderful, beautiful picture to the outside world, something that's appealing to the outside world. And then he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Who here wants their body of sin to be brought to nothing? Nothing. That sin has no role in your life anymore. But there's a condition to it. You see the condition for you to be free from a life of sin. And the condition is we know that our old self was crucified with him. So it tells us is that that day when we made the decision to follow Jesus and lay down our own life, that day our lives, our bodies, our world, died to sin. That is the status of our sin. It's dead. It's, that, it's the truth that it's dead. And it's its status that it is dead. But we do not always live with that truth in mind. We do not always live in that truth. It's almost as if we know that it happened, we know that it's true, but we step away from it and we live in a different idea of what our lives should look like. But he's making it so clear. He says, he says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, you see, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So it's again, it's this condition. He says, if we have died with Christ. So what he's saying is that the problem or the solution to us living in sin is that we have to die in sin. We have to crucify sin. And he says, but if that is what we will have done, we will live in Christ. So who wants to live in Christ? Who wants to live life free from sin? But it is a condition that we have to crucify the old self. And we know if we look inside of ourselves and we look at the things that we struggle with and we look at the messes that we make, that there is so much of ourselves that we are holding on to and that we refuse to crucify. Because it's so precious to us particularly the fact that we want to remain in control. We want to make the decisions of our own life. We want to determine where we're going and what we're going to do and how we're going to spend our time. (coughs) 
then goes on to say from verse 9, it says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, what Paul is saying to you is he's saying that there is a truth about you, and that is that you have died to sin. You are dead to sin, and sin is dead to you. And there's another truth about you, and the truth about you is, is that you are alive. You are alive in Christ. The problem is not the truth about who God has created you to be and who Jesus has changed you into. The question is whether or not you are living in that truth. And Paul is reminding you and he's saying to you, he's saying, you need to live in that truth. You have to remember who you are. You have to remember who God created you to be. You have to remember who you are in Jesus. And then he goes on and he becomes a little bit more practical and he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. There's one of those words that you can throw something at me. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. There's so many great illustrations here. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So he's talking about reigning which is like something ruling over you. You see that? He's talking about sin ruling over you, like being your Lord, by being the one that controls you, right? But then it starts off, it says, let not sin therefore reign in your body. He's saying, I've now explained to you this amazing truth about who you are in Christ, and the truth of the fact that you are dead to sin, that, that you are alive in Christ. He says, but you must not let sin reign. Do you usually choose who the king is that reign over you? No, you don't. You are born in a country or into an area, and the king is the king. And the president is the president. You don't have any choice in it, except if you talk about voting, but it's just not the same. You do not have a choice about who your king is, but this is talking about you having a choice whether or not you're going to let sin reign in your mortal body. It says you shouldn't let it do that. You shouldn't. He's saying is, is that that's the only way that sin can have control over you is if you let it. And then he says in verse 13, he says, do not Present your members. Your members is like your, your, your arms, your legs, your eyes, your ears, your abilities. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do you see what he, it's such a beautiful picture about presenting. It doesn't say sin comes and he 
takes your members for itself and it uses your members to achieve its purposes. It doesn't. It's not what it says. It says, do not present them to sin. You see that it is you that have a choice in the matter. It's you that have the choice to decide what do you want to do. Do you want to present your members as sin or don't you have to? But he's saying that against the background of the truth that you have died to sin, that you are alive in Christ. So you are able to make that decision, not because of how wonderful you are and what an excellent Christian you are, because you're in every nation, Linwood. He's saying it's because of the truth of the fact that when you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you died to sin and you're alive in Christ. And that's why you can decide not to present your members to sin for it to use it for its purposes and destroy your life and those around you in its path. He then goes on to say, but present yourselves, you see again, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments, as tools, as weapons for righteousness. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful choice that you and I have been given. And it's a choice that we don't have to make out of our own strength. It's not a choice that we have to make because we are such wonderful people and some of us are better than others and some of us are able to make the choice and some of us are not able to make the choice. But we are able to make that choice not to present our members as tools for sin to achieve its purposes and for us to make a mess of things. But we've got a choice in Christ to make a decision to present our members, who we are, our talents and everything, as something that God can use as a tool, as a weapon to what? For righteousness. To be in right standing with God. To make things right in your own life. To make things right in this church. To make things right in the world. You've got a choice in Christ. And then he ends off with a beautiful promise. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you. That dominion is like a terrible, controlling, suffocating word. Something has dominion over you. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So he started off talking about grace and it not being a license for us to do what we want to, he ends off and he's saying, is, is that grace that I've taught you? That you're not under the law, but you are under grace. And that means that the beautiful, wonderful news to you is that you are no longer a victim and obligated by sin, but that you are free in Christ. You see what God is presenting to you this morning is He's presenting a solution to you to three problems. He's coming to you first and He's saying to you, He's saying to you that, you know, perhaps in your thinking, because of my grace and because of the beautiful plan that I have for this world, you have skewed it slightly and you've started to make that an excuse give you a license to live the life that you want to live instead of the living the life that I have for you. And you've seen that you've messed those things up sometimes. And you've seen the hurt and the damage that it 
causes. You've seen the damage that it causes in your own life, but you've also seen the damage that it causes in your life, your relationships with others. You've seen the damage that it causes in the church. You've seen the fact that it has made you ineffective in the world outside of this church, in the community, community that you are involved in. He's saying, I want to give you a solution for the problems that you are experiencing in your own life. I want to present you with a solution to the problem in church and the relationships that you have. And I want to present a solution to you in the problems that you see in the world around you. And he's saying that if you will allow yourself, if you will make a decision to live in the truth that is that you have died to sin and that you are alive in Christ, that you can present your members as a tool and as a weapon and as an advantage in God's kingdom, that He will come first and He will sort out the messes that you've made. He will start dealing with those things inside of you that's, that makes you look different from Christ. And he will start as he sorts out those little things and he will let them die off one by one and he will make you alive and he will give you the life that he wants you to live, a life that is so much better than the one that you have for yourself. And he wants to set you free and he wants you to feel truly alive as you live this life. And as we come to a realization that the fact that we have all died to sin, but that we are a living Christ and we've been planted together and we are come together with our differences, whether it's inside of every nation, Linwood, or inside the wider every nation family in this city or in the world, if it's inside the body of Christ, the other churches that we come into contact with and who we've been placed into society with. He says that if you can all come together despite your differences and the messes that you made and the fact that they are different, but the fact that you are alive in Christ, you are planted together in Christ and you become with your differences and the fact that there hasn't been unity between you forever, but you become a beautiful God and a beautiful picture, a beautiful bride for my son. And the last thing that he says to you is, he says, as I change your life, as I make you like my son, and as I change you as a community of believers, as a church, and I make you this beautiful bride for my son, it's going to become something beautiful. It's going to be something that is appealing to the world outside. It's going to become like a rescue boat where people will see you coming past and they are drowning. They're drowning. And they want to be saved. And as God changes us, and as He changes us as a community of believers, and He sorts out the relationships between us, and He unifies us in Christ, we become this beautiful picture to a broken world where people just want to say, I just want in. I want to be part of that. I want to be alive like you are. That means we have to live in the truth that we are died, have died to sin and that we are alive in Christ. We must be dying to live.
We're going to pray now. I'm going to ask the, the, the host to just get the communion ready. And we're going to use community to get a communion together in community. And it's going to take a, a few minutes to get everything ready. I want you just for us to just become quiet and to reflect on what God is saying to us. Because I really know, I know, there's no doubt in my heart. Just, just like God has been speaking to me through this message, He's speaking to each one of you this morning. I don't know how exactly the message looks or sounds or what He is addressing in your life. I don't know exactly where you are, but I have no doubt that God has got a message for each one of you specifically this morning. And as we come become quiet now, we don't have a two-point plan, a three-point plan, a five-point plan that you're going to apply this week and then somehow you're going to become a better person. But what we do have is a Father that loves us and that cares about us and that wants us to be alive in Christ. Have relationships that's alive. Be in a church that's alive. Be in a community that's alive. So as you become quiet, ask God, what is He saying to you today? What's God saying to you? God, you say I'm all right. But I know I've sometimes used that as an excuse to do things that are not all right. Sometimes allowed that to make myself become something that is not all right. I've looked at the world and thought I'm better than them. At least I'm not like them. And that's not all right. And this morning, God, you give to each one of the promise and remind us of the truth of our status in Christ, and that is that we are dead to sin. We are alive in you, Jesus. Pray that you impart to everyone this morning what it is that you specifically want to address in their lives. What part of their lives or what actions or thoughts or ideas or plans for the future are there that you want to nail to the cross this morning and say no more. I want you to be alive.
thank you that you love us so much that you say we're all right. That you love us too much to just leave us where we are. You love us too much to leave us where we are in a place where we're not living in the knowledge and the truth of what you did for us and what it means to us and what it means in our relationships and what it means in church and what it means in our community. Come to you today and we say we're sorry and we say thank you that you saved us. Thank you that you chose us. Thank you that you love us. And thank you that you continue saving us every day. Thank you.